0: Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon booklist, list, coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, Leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help So thank you to everyone for all that Alright, enough of this, let's crack on with the episode In 1921, a series of accidents on a small rural road carving through the heart of the boggy marshes and fields of Dartmoor in southeast England Led to a brief explosion in excitement concerning the ghostly image of a pair of disembodied hands forcing drivers off the road and into potentially fatal accidents. Following a little dash of press magic, the story took hold and grew for over a hundred years, until today, where it has become accepted as a staple in British urban legend. But how did it happen? How did a relatively innocuous story take such a hold of the public imagination for so long, preserving, evolving, and growing with each passing generation? This is the story of the hairy hands of Dartmoor, a story that blurs the lines between fact and fiction and spawned into existence a fully-fledged cryptic legend from nowhere. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello everybody, welcome to Season 4, Episode 15, Dark Histories. I'm Ben, as always, I hope you're all doing very well. Um, Before we start this episode... I want to give a a, just a a brief overview of roads in England. Um, Don't worry, it's like I'm going to like test you on this or anything. And it's not super important, but I thought it would be, you know, if you're not from England, um, just give you an idea of the road system. And then it will maybe just help you to kind of visualise the area a little bit. So basically in England, we've got three kind of like main types of roads, right? So we've got... M roads, which are motorways, so um, and in that case, I think of like things like freeways and you know multi-lane, kind of fast human conveyor belts. Um, they're like the M roads, right? After that, we like the step down from there is like the A roads. Um, and they're often, they're not always, but quite often they're like dual lane, still quite fast roads, and they tend to kind of you see them often like carving through countryside, reasonably fast roads. Then after that, you've got B roads. And B roads are pretty much everything below A roads. And, and they go from like single lane, sort of just regular roads to sort of real countryside dirt tracks. They, they really do sort of go down to like rural dirt tracks at the, the very bottom end sort of thing. In generally speaking, like B roads are a way slower. They're usually quite winding. And, and in generally speaking, they would be like your kind of your scenic route, if you like. So, you know, if you were going to drive like the scenic way, you're probably going to be taking a lot of B roads and your journey is probably going to like double or triple over like taking an A road or an M road. So that's kind of the road system here. And I I thought it might just help give you an idea of where we're talking. Anyway, that will make an awful lot more sense once you start listening to the episode. I say it's not a big deal and don't stress, it's not like I'm going to be like laying out loads of complicated road nonsense. I just thought it's a good idea to kind of let chat that out there at the start and let you know what like the score so you can kind of just help you visualize it i guess anyway thanks very much um, for downloading Uh, i'm just going to do a quick thank you to all the patrons as always um and thank you to new patrons we've got amanda colleen caleb karen erin laura megan katina mike liz erin jane catherine lisa daisy and milivan so thank you very much um, it's greatly appreciated as always um I, I say it like pretty much every week but it's every week it's no less true like i you know it's thanks to the support of the patron that really sort of keeps the show able to tick at this point so thank you very much for your help it's it's greatly appreciated it lets me do what i love really so thanks very much um right on to the episode this episode is kind of an interesting one I thought i will explain more about how we wound up doing this episode because I wasn't actually ever going to do this episode but um, yeah I'll explain a bit more about that at the end for now let's just you know get straight into it don't want to kind of keep you here for too long this is The Hairy Hands of Dartmoor Dartmoor in Devon, South West England is an area of national parklands covering 368 square miles Its sprawling, green, brown moorland stretches to the horizon in every direction, pierced through by rolling tors, tall capped mountains of granite that jut out into the sky. The landscape, beautiful as it is, can also appear isolating and at times dangerous, as peat bogs swell beneath fields of grassland, western heath and cotton grass. The area is dotted throughout by Neolithic remains, and tall standing stones that only seek to elevate the myths and legends from the area, of which there are many, from large stalking black dogs of hellish significance to pixies, spectral hounds and headless horsemen. The Moors have inspired writers to write both about the natural beauty of the area and the uncompromising atmosphere of rural isolation and mystery. The most famous of these is undoubtedly Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who set The Hound of the Baskervilles, one of his most famous Sherlock Holmes novels, On the Moors, using elements of local legends to inspire the mystery of his own ghostly hellhound. Spawning folklore for hundreds of years, one of the more modern legends to originate from the Moors is the story of the hairy hands, a pair of disembodied hands hell-bent on causing tragedy to lonely travelers who drive a certain stretch of road. As the legend has grown, so too is the story, leaving a sniff of a trail that allows us to reconstruct the original events and eventual evolution to the tale that it's become today. The Easter weekend of 1921 saw several road accidents, enough for many of the newspapers to point out the disproportionate amount, some even calling it a feature of the holiday. In Chelmsford, Reginald E. Arrowsmith was killed when the motorcycle that he was riding on as passenger crashed into a car. In Manchester, John Edgar Bromley, a young Manchester University student, died following a collision on his motorbike, a sidecar, with a lorry. In a car accident outside Aberdeen, six occupants of the vehicle were alive, but gravely injured in hospital. There was one other casualty that weekend, on a small stretch of road between Princetown and Tavistock in the Dartmoor National Park in the county of Devon, southeast England. This accident involved Dr. Ernest Hassler-Helby, a 51-year-old medical officer at Dartmoor Prison. Born in Lewes, East Sussex in the south-east of England in 1870, he had later moved west when he married Agnes Maud Stanley Marshall in 1898. With his own medical career and Agnes being the daughter of a well-known local physician, the couple were well thought of and respected in the area. Agnes had been a long-standing feature of the local parish church for some time, whilst Ernest had been no slouch in the medical field, having worked previously as the demonstrator of bacteriology and later a lecturer in comparative pathology and bacteriology at King's College London, before advancing into a career with the British prison system, where he held a series of positions medical officer at Wormwood Scrubs, Croydon Borough Hospital, Wilson Green Prison, and eventually Dartmoor. In 1909, during the suffragette movement, Helby had been one of the first doctors to attempt force feeding of prisoners who were protesting via hunger strike by way of a nasal tube, a move that saw him taken to court by Mary Lee, a prisoner housed in Wilson Green Prison, who had been striking in order to draw attention to the political fight of the suffragettes. The case ended up falling in its favour, ruling that Helby was under an obligation to save the prisoners' lives, including the use of force feeding, it was a contentious ruling at the time, in that it supported the health of prisoners, but at the same time, it limited the effectiveness of a hunger strike and therefore could equally have been seen as trampling over the rights of an individual to protest. During the First World War, Helby remained as an active medical officer and was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant of the 1st Wessex Field Ambulance. On the afternoon of Thursday, the 21st of June, 1921, Dr. Ernest Helby jumped onto his motorbike and began the journey along the B3212, a small rural country road that cuts through the countryside from east to west between two bridges and the nearby village of Postbridge, where he was due to attend an inquest. Today, the B3212 is a narrow, two-lane asphalt road, gently rolling over low peaks and undulations, slashing through expansive flat fields to stretch out on either side as far as the hills on the horizon surrounding and fencing off the green but somewhat bleak landscape. In 1921, it was a singular lane with no markings and perhaps only one step up from a gravel track with large pieces of loose, light-coloured stone and rock breaking free from its scarred surface. This was a country that inspired Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes story The Hound of the Baskervilles, its granite hills and expansive boggy fields draped in hazy fog enhancing the feeling of isolation. As Dr. Helby was riding along this road, two-thirds of the way through his journey, a sudden jerk at the front wheel and a splintering of metal saw the front axle fail and the spokes of the wheel collapse under the weight of the steel bike. Throwing him from the road into a ditch, he suffered severe head injuries. Within a few minutes of the accident, a passing car stopped by the scene and pulling over to help out, Drove as fast as they could to Postbridge to secure the aid of a doctor. Sadly, upon their return, it was already too late for Dr. Helby, who, upon inspection, was thought to have died almost instantly in the crash. An inquest was held on the following Saturday, carried out at the Princeton Prison by the Oakhampton coroner. They found a verdict of accidental death attributed to a fracture of the skull. Interestingly, when the story is repeated today, it's often mentioned that Ernest was riding with his two daughters in a sidecar. When looking at the original reports of the accident, the presence of the two young girls is mentioned in some newspapers, whilst others make no mention of them at all. As it happens, there exists no birth records at all for any Helby children, and it appears as far as all census records are concerned that the couple remain childless throughout their lives. One suggestion is that if the presence of the young girls was a reality and not just a fiction inserted at a later date to spice the story up, then they were perhaps the daughters of the prison governor, though quite why they would have been in Helby's sidecar is anyone's guess. Dr Helby's accident may seem fairly inconspicuous when taken as an isolated incident, and though at the time it was reported on in the newspapers as a tragic and unfortunate accident, Little else was mentioned about it for some years. It grew in significance over the years, simply because it became the first of what would turn out to be several accidents all on the same stretch of road, with each growing slightly stranger than the last. Just a matter of months later, on Wednesday the 24th of August, a large Sharaban car filled with 11 tourists travelling through Dartmoor on holiday from Torquay suffered a failed steering gear which saw the vehicle careen off the road and mount a bank to the side. Though there were no fatalities on this occasion, one of the visitors, a Mrs. Fitton, was hospitalised due to the injuries she sustained after being thrown out the back of the open top vehicle. It was the third accident in as many months that drew the most attention. Two days later, on the evening of August the 26th, An officer in the British Army took a spill on the road whilst driving his motorbike. Self-proclaimed psychic investigator and friend to the officer, T Gifford, later wrote up the story of the accident, complete with first-hand account by the victim for the Daily Mail, which published the article in mid-October of 1921. It was not my fault, believe it or not. Something drove me off the road. A pair of hands closed over mine. I felt them as plainly as I ever felt anything in my life. Large, muscular, hairy hands. I fought them for all I was worth, but they were too strong for me. They forced the machine into the turf at the edge of the road, and I knew no more until I came to myself, lying a dozen feet away, on my face, on the turf. The article, which took the headline, Unseen Hands, suggested that the culprit be either an elemental or natural spirit, or that of the earthly spirit of a murderer. With such sensational theories banded about by Gifford, the piece caused a brief flurry of column inches being granted to the mysterious force that was apparently forcing drivers off the road between two bridges and post bridge. The articles, despite being sensational and exciting to wider folk, were not given as much shrift locally. The Western Morning News, a local paper to the incidents, Interviewed people from the nearby towns of Princetown and Postbridge on the phenomena, and they seemed to be much more sceptical. I found the article on the Unseen Hands to be a general topic of conversation in Princetown, where the people with whom I discussed it, besides at once poo pooing the suggestion, expressed their candid belief that the author is some practical joker who is, unwittingly, tending to do the district a great deal of harm by frightening nervous people away. I've known them all my life, said one man, and this is the first time I've heard of any ghosts. It's too ridiculous to talk about. I'll give you my explanation of the three accidents. One was due to the bad state of the road, another to faulty mechanism, and the third might be easily accounted for. And local opinion didn't improve as the author of the piece moved to Postbridge, where people there went as far as calling it All Durned rot. Perhaps, even more interestingly, the third accident whose report drew the attention to the unseen hands in the first place, was looking likely to be a complete fiction, as no report of the accident was ever made at the time, and the rider who crashed was never named as anyone more than a Captain M, with no locals being aware of who the man was, nor when the accident had happened. More widely, the article fueled a debate that saw readers writing in to national newspapers to air their own thoughts and theories on the matter, across Britain. This led to some pretty wild and loosely scientific suggestions. Sir, in reference to the various press reports on this subject, I may mention that I happened to see one of these extraordinary swerves in the same place at 3.30 p.m. on September the 15th. We were motoring up from two bridges and saw a motor coach full of passengers ahead of us on the road coming towards us, while several hundred yards distant The coach suddenly swerved into the roadside, almost at right angles. It seemed for a few seconds, impossible either that it should not turn over, or that passengers did not get thrown out. It was a long, straight piece of road, with no curve and no other traffic, and the coach was being slowly and carefully driven. When we came up to the place, we examined the tire marks on the road, which were almost right angular. I never saw such a thing. May I suggest? that these things may be due to magnetic rocks, of which there are many on Dartmoor. This extraordinary season may have increased or altered magnetic currents. It would appear to have some connection with metal, and the steering wheel or handlebars would act as conductors, and an electric shock might account for the strange sensation described by the young officer. In the interests of the public, it would be nice if someone with the requisite instruments could test the road from the top of Merripit Hill to Archton. Sadly, it seemed that no one with the requisite tools stepped up to the challenge, or at least, nobody whom the press reported on. Instead, the writer found themselves challenged in another correspondence signed Sanity two days later by a writer with his own theory. Sir, most cars run on rubber tires. Rubber is a non-conductor of electricity. Steering wheels are of vulcanite or wood which are equally good non-conductors motorcycle handlebar grips, a vulcanite or rubber. It does not, therefore, require even the perusal of a one-shilling sixpence manual of elementary electricity to describe Mrs. Chase's suggestion as futile. Any car driver of experience knows certain places on certain roads where he always finds a tendency for his car to get into that ditch. It is due to camber, potholes, or grooving of the road's surface, or a combination of these and is particularly common on a downward slope. Dr. Helby's accident was proved to be due to a fracture of the motorcycle's steering. After the initial flurry of accidents in 1921, things seemed to calm down, and although there was one further accident that was reported in August of 1922, no more talk of the hairy hands appeared, and things seemed to go quiet on the story. But in 1928, A random letter to the local paper, the Western Times, showed that the subject had not quite been put to bed. A Dartmoor warning to the editor of the Western Times. Sir, on Tuesday morning last, a party of us who were motoring across Dartmoor were interested in some notices on each side of the road, not many miles from Morton Hampstead, with these words in large print. Beware of death by hairy hands. We should very much like to know the origin of these signs. Perhaps one of your readers will kindly satisfy our curiosity. Thinking of you in anticipation of an insertion in your columns, A Lover of Dartmoor, Exeter, September 13th, 1928. Sadly, neither the writers nor our own curiosity has ever satisfied, and no one ever wrote back in reply with any explanation of the story. Once again, The story appeared to fall into obscurity, possibly kept alive in oral tales, but not again in print until 1983 when a story originally taking place in 1924 was published. This story escalated the mystery of the hairy hands in a quite bizarre manner. Theo Brown, born Theodora in 1914, was a British scholar on West Country Folklore specifically focusing around the area of Dartmoor and Devon. Her father was a Welsh scholar and later head of department in the British Museum. Sadly however, her mother died during childbirth and so she was placed up for adoption where a Devon-based family, the Langford Browns, took her in two years later. The Langford Browns were a well-to-do family and her adoptive father busied himself with matters of family estates and fishing whilst her adoptive mother had a particular interest in art and the folklore of fairies. The family encouraged Theo in her own interests in art, and her mother specifically was more than likely instrumental in shaping Theo's own later career into investigating the local tales. In 1952, she became the recorder of folklore for the Devonshire Association, where she collected and published many stories and works on the folklore surrounding Dartmoor, including stories of the Black Dog, and West Country entrances to the Underworld. She authored papers for the Folklore Society, though she often found herself meeting harsh criticism from the wider academic community due to her lack of formal training. Despite this, she became a research fellow at the University of Exeter in the Departments of Theology and History, where she stayed until the 1970s, when she suffered a stroke and never fully recovered, until her death in 1993, She taught twice a week at the Broadclyst Primary School in East Devon. Following her death, many of her works, including notes, maps, incomplete papers and correspondences, were installed into the archives of the University of Exeter. Importantly, for the story of the Hairy Hands, Theo Brown published a book titled Devon Ghosts in 1983, in which she tells her own story of the Hairy Hands, which many claim is a personal account witnessed in 1924 while staying with their parents in a caravan just half a mile from the spot of the accident of the fateful stretch of road between two bridges and post bridge. I knew there was some power very seriously menacing us near and I must act very swiftly. As I looked up to the little window at the end of the caravan I saw something moving and as I stared I saw it was from the fingers and palm of a very large hand with many hairs on the joints and back of it, clawing up and up to the top of the window, which was a little open. I knew it wished to do harm to my husband sleeping below. I knew that the owner of the hand hated us and wished harm, and I knew it was no ordinary hand and that no blow or shot would have any power over it. Almost unconsciously, I made the sign of the cross and I prayed very much that we might be kept safe. At once, The hands slowly sank down out of sight, and I knew the danger was gone. I did say a thankful prayer, and fell at once into a peaceful sleep. We stayed in that spot for several weeks, but I never felt the evil influence again near the caravan. But I did not feel happy in some places not far off, and would not for anything have walked alone on the moor at night, nor on a tour above our caravan. Quite different to the original tales. The story presents a muddled picture of the hairy hand. Most online sources and some well-known authors on the subject of the paranormal and occult world who really should know better regurgitate a singular story that this event happened in 1924 to Theo Brown herself. This immediately throws up complications. The difficult question of the husband is the most obvious. Theo, who you'll remember was born in 1912 was obviously not married in 1924. In the original source, the book Ghosts of Devon, published in 1983, Theo actually never states that the story was attributed to her. In fact, the original teller of the story is kept nameless throughout, and some more serious researchers into the subject have suggested that it's perhaps a story told to her by her mother, though they only suggest this based on the known fact that Theo's parents did own a caravan out on the moors that they routinely visited. It could be just as likely that she had had the story recounted to her by any number of people with similar getaway caravans on the moors. Theo's own thoughts on the story are, in all likelihood, a little more agnostic. In an image tweeted by Exeter University, a portion of Theo Brown's original notes can be seen, open on a draft of her story of the hairy hands, where she states in it that, Whatever the basic facts of the story, it is certain that they have been magnified out of all recognition by the popular imagination of visitors and a scoop staffed press, and as a result, every bend in the Postbridge bridge Miravale Road has become associated with this lurking danger. Nevertheless, this account is now forever linked to the earlier road accidents and adopted as canon as the internet has taken hold of the story and multiplied it in unresearched, copy-pasted, blog-spam and clickbait articles. Despite all its historical flavour, the vast majority of accounts that mention the Hairy Hands in most retellings do, in fact, come from 21st century sources. After Theo Brown published her book in 1983, things once more fell silent on the Hairy Hands front until 2003, when author Michael Williams, A prolific author on the subject of the paranormal focusing on the southwestern counties of Devonshire and Cornwall published his book, Supernatural Dartmoor, in which he recounted a story told to him by local journalist Rufus Endel. Endel had passed away in 1986, aged 80, however, he'd recounted his own experiences of the hairy hands to Michael Williams, wishing him to hold it back from publication until after his death. In Endel's account, he stated that he fought with his vehicle's steering wheel as a pair of hands gripped the driving wheel and I had to fight for control. Endel survived his brush with the hands, but only after an extended effort to keep his car on the road. Here, the published accounts of the hands end, though the story has been expanded upon since the spread of the legend around the internet. There have been numerous claims from people who have said to have had their own personal brush with the hands and anecdotes have spread, evolving the story into modern times. One of the more popularly cited internet-era anecdotes comes from the poster DBY on the forum everythingghost.co.uk, who wrote in 2014, My uncle was working for a builder then, working late on a site, when he got held up and came home a different way, and he had to go down that same road. He was driving a small van, and said it was very dark, And first he felt like the van was being followed or someone was watching him and just felt spooked anyway. Then he thinks he saw someone on the side of the road but he knew no one was there. When he went further down the road, he felt his van grabbed like by a force and he could not keep the steering wheel straight so he was going to go into the side of the road. He is a builder and a big strong man, not a weakling and was trying to turn the wheel as hard as he could but no way. Then he felt something on the wheel down, as his eyes were just on the road till then, and saw a pair of large hands covered in hair on the wheel, grabbing it and pushing the other way. His van went up on the verge and banged hard onto the grass moor, and almost wound up hitting a tree, but stopped. Just then, the hands disappeared, but he was really scared, and lucky someone came up the road a few minutes later behind him in another car and stopped to see he was alright, as he was up on the bank, so he'd clearly come off the road. He was alright, but he was in shock. My uncle still swears blind that this happened to him, and he's not someone who admits to things like this. That was 20 years ago, but he did not know about the story of Harry hands till he was told about it. Now he's sure that he had the same thing happen to him as that. It turns out lots of people experienced this same thing over many years, and they think it could be someone was killed on that road much earlier, and other ideas about it. The story of Florence Warwick. A young lady on holiday on the moors is another popular modern anecdote that tells of her car breaking down along the stretch of road and when Florence leaned over to the car's glove box to retrieve some sort of user manual, she saw the ghostly visage of hands through the windscreen. As I was reading in the falling light, a cold feeling suddenly came over me. I felt as if I was being watched. I looked up and saw a pair of huge hairy hands pressed against the windscreen. I tried to scream, but I couldn't. I was frozen with fear, it was horrible, they were just inches away, after what seemed a lifetime I heard myself cry out and the hands seemed to vanish. As the story grew and the vacuum of solid information became ever wider, the absence of an explanation has led people to create their own theories on what happened, some with more truth in historical fact than others. One popular theory suggests that the road was built through the remains of a Bronze Age village, which, for some reason, seems to have adopted the same concept of the common trope that the spirits are left angry with the trespasser, a theme that's more often attributed to native burial grounds or other colonial tales of xenophobia. Although other theories are equally spurious, such as attempts to link the hairy hands with stories of escaped murderers or even a British Bigfoot, one theory that actually does have some historical fact is that the road lies close to the site of an old gunpowder mill that suffered an explosion, the hands attributed to the spirit of one of the victims. In reality, there actually was a gunpowder mill on the outskirts of Postbridge, built in 1848 by George Frean, a well-to-do Plymouth businessman who established the Plymouth and Dartmoor Gunpowder Company. The mill was built to produce black powder a mixture of saltpetre, sulphur and charcoal and used in the local quarries and tin mines for blasting. The complex, which consisted of the main mill factory and a series of workers' houses and water stations, operated until 1887, where, following the invention of dynamite, gunpowder fell out of favour and the mill eventually closed its doors. Interestingly, there were cases of explosions at the powder mill, reported in 1851 and there does exist a case that loosely marries two of the theories that of the gunpowder and that of an escaped convict that took place just before the mill's closure when an explosion took place nearby the mill in September of 1887 killing one man and injuring two more. A shocking explosion occurred at the quarrying operations at Dartmoor prison yesterday. A hundred convicts had been told off to blast. About eleven, a hole was charged with gunpowder in the usual way but the fuse failed to answer. After the lapse of nearly a couple of hours, a party, including two convicts named Roberts and Gaskell, went to the scene with buckets of water in order to extinguish any lingering sparks. No sooner had they begun to pour it in than the gunpowder went off with a tremendous report. Roberts fell beneath a block of granite several tons in weight. His companion was blown bodily across the quarry, where the officers received the explosion in their faces and were rendered unconscious. The convicts immediately and spontaneously rallied, and running to the assistance of the injured, extricated Roberts, who was frightfully mutilated, in time to see him die. They also picked up Gaskell, who was shockingly cut and crushed, and the two officers, one of whom, Mr. Moore, was found on arriving at the hospital to have lost the sight of both eyes. Whilst this story is only tenuously linked to both the Gunpowder Mill and the story of the Hairy Hands, it does at least, provide some historical precedent for one theory at least. Throughout the 19th century, it seems that explosions of powder mills across the country were not such a rare occurrence, and it seems that the commonly repeated theory in the Harry Hans case, usually attributed to a spark coming from the metal flooring, stems from a similar explosion in Roslyn that took place in 1857. One of the workers was clearing the rust from the metal floor with a copper hammer when a rogue spark ignited the powder dust. All told, however, most of the theories seem to be relatively tenuous, often formed from spurious tales. The reality of the hairy hands lies much more in the original stories of accidents that took place throughout the summer of 1921. As the story has mutated over the years, even the original accidents have found themselves tainted with fictional additions, such as the case with the story that Dr. Helwy, the motorbike driver in the original accident, called out to the two young girls, who may or may not have even been present in his sidecar at the time of his fatal accident, telling them to throw themselves out of the vehicle. The curious addition of the children only became part of the accepted story in August of 1921, after the third accident, when the likely fictional Captain M, of whom there appears to exist no records of, told his story to the self-proclaimed psychic investigator T. Gifford, another man who apparently left little record of his existence. Many retellings of the story say it goes back to the early 1900s or 1910s, though they never cite any actual accidents. More than likely, this is just yet another addition, probably inserted in an attempt to draft in a few more years to the tale and give it more mystery and intrigue by adding vague statements such as, could date back to. But where do the origins of the ghostly disembodied hands lie in our popular imagination? In Victorian spirit photography, hands were often depicted reaching out from the other side to our own modern interpretations where disembodied hands creep out of the darkness controlled by an unseen master. Catherine Rowe in her book Dead Hands Fictions of Agency Renaissance to Modern puts forth the argument that disembodied hands in literature represent criticisms to the concepts of free will and a human's ability to act on their own independence and make their own choices. From Shakespeare to the Adams Family, and especially in 19th century gothic fiction and 20th century horror movies, ghostly hands toy with our fear that we are being pressured, pushed or otherwise forced into an action that we otherwise would not do of our own free will. It subscribes to ideas more universal and fundamental than fiction of the last 200 years, however. In The Tale of the Three Army Surgeons, published in 1815 by the Brothers Grimm, but with roots much further back in German folklore, a crew of surgeons accidentally attach the hands of a thief onto the arm of one of the surgeons, causing him to lose his own free will and begin stealing against his wishes. In Japan, tales of the Akateko, a ghost, colloquially known as yokai of a disembodied red hand belonging to a child are said to live in honey locust trees and drop down as people pass underneath in order to scare them while manakute no yure are ghost hands extending from a wall beckoning passers-by the hands are the manifestations of the spirits of dead people who have only the strength to summon into being the image of their hands which they use to signal their want of something in the physical world to terrified passers-by in Russian stories of Baba Yaga, the infamous witch is often depicted with pets, usually of animalic origin, but at times she's said to be served by a pair of disembodied, sentient hands. And in Iroquois legend, the oniate or dried hands, exist to punish badly behaved people, killing, inflicting disease, or rendering blind any that feel its scaly touch. In Western philosophy, The hand demonstrates the difference between human and animal bodies, as well as confirming the superiority of humans as the dominant species. Aristotle called the hands the instrument of instruments, embodying the relation between intention and act. The concept of a free-moving disembodied hand provoked feelings in us of unease as we see an inanimate thing gain sentience and turn on the self, removing our own will. They also raise troubling questions as to the origin and existence of the self as well as its existence in space. Disembodied hands have all the free agency of a human without the limitations of moral conscience or the physical handicap of a lumbering body to get in the way allowing unnatural movement and unhindered action and they cast into doubt our own sense of self. In the hairy hands legend these concepts are most obviously rendered in the image of the hands gripping the wheel of a travelling vehicle and forcing it off the road, inevitably causing harm to the driver or passengers, or in the story retold by Theo Brown and of Florence Warwick that saw the ghost hands creepily move with menace towards their victim. Skeptics of the story, of course, have their own theories, the most common of which lies with the camber of the road. cited as being unusually steep at the point of the accident, Most suggest that this camber was the source of the unnatural feeling of a pull on the steering wheel in the stories. However, if this indeed were true, the stories would not have progressed much past the mid-century when the road was entirely relayed with asphalt. Realistically, the troubling fact of it all was simply that road fatalities were not particularly uncommon throughout the 1920s. Motor vehicle technology still remained fairly primitive and road surfaces, oftentimes more so, making motoring far from the safest pastime. It's likely that a combination of the camber in the road, the state and condition of the road, and the veracity of a press, keen for a sensational story, work together to create the origins of what has grown into an urban legend today. Told and retold, always evolving, it grew from a long tradition of fear and unease in the fundamental ways that we see ourselves in the world, amped up by the gothic fiction of the 19th and 20th centuries, all of which help it to remain fascinating and intriguing despite its almost guaranteed status as a tongue-in-cheek, fireside folktale of the Ghosts of Dartmoor, an area that's steeped in folklore, tradition and desolate landscapes that evoke a natural propensity for such imagination. that's the story of the hairy hands of dartmoor it's a fascinating story and i and there's loads to talk about because i really had a great time researching this one uh, and sort of digging through and tracing in the evolution back um so there's plenty to talk about which we're going to do after these short
1: adverts forbidden history grisly ghosts monstrous cryptids and harrowing folklore dominate japan's history and culture Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avery. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support, so in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our longtime advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself, and I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android, and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got The Original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon... I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com. And you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So I think the very first thing I really want to say about this is that I, I feel a bit bad in a way, sort of pulling the story apart like I have essentially done and and sort of, I don't want to say debunked it because, I mean, it is what it is. But, you know, when I went into this, I, I go into these stories and I, I want to believe them. You know, like I, I, I'm very sceptical, but I, I think healthily so. And I think you have to ask questions, right? But I, I want them to be true at the end of the day because you know, I love these sorts of stories but sadly you can only really, t- you know, if you've got any integrity anyway, you can only really tell what's there and as I look through the archives the story had such a clear lineage you know, it was so the, the evolution was so obvious from like one sort of publication to the to next, sort of working backwards that I, I really couldn't approach it in any other way without sort of just throwing aside any sort of integrity, really. So I kind of had to do it in this way. But nevertheless, I still think that it's a really fascinating story. And um, if nothing else, I think it's a really good example of how urban legends uh, are born from sort of old oral folk tales. But yeah, I thought it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. So the story starts and you've got that initial sort of flurry of accidents. and And the first kind of bit that... Gets you when you're researching it straight away is that the girls in the sidecar are never mentioned in the original stories. There is one newspaper that I saw that mentioned um, two young girls, but that, that's the only one. Sadly, there's no records of like hospitalizations or anything like that. So we can only go on like the newspaper articles. Um, but the majority of newspaper articles and one of the articles that I found that is reporting on the inquest. Don't mention the young girls whatsoever. Now, I think that the inquest is the key there. That, for me, was like the, the source that I could trust the most, I think, because it sort of detailed the inquest, and they never brought up the two young girls. Now, I would have thought that they probably would have drafted in those two young girls to speak at the inquest, at the very least. And if they didn't, I would have thought they would have, even you know, if they didn't bring in the two young girls, they would have been mentioned at that inquest, and they weren't. So I think that other newspapers sort of threw those two young girls in either as a mistake or to spice it up a little bit. Um, but, it, but interestingly, regardless, the two young girls are not said to have said anything. They would just claimed to have been there. You know, one newspaper basically just said I know, uh, there was two young girls in the sidecar. That's it. Now, later stories say that, you know, the two young girls, just as he, he, he was going to crash the axe like the bike he's kind of yelled out to the two young girls that something was wrong and that they should jump free. Now, this is total tosh. Like, this doesn't... This never happened. And it's a really... Like, stuff like this is, like I'm saying, like, the the, the way it evolved and, and over time has been kind of added to. It's really interesting. But that's the first thing, I think, that really kind of flashes, um, like, oh, OK, there's something wrong here. You know, like, when you read the original stories there, the, the next one is really... Because the, the the middle of the first three accidents, that's a nothing accident really. That's sort of largely overlooked and, and ignored, um, and nothing really happened there. No one was really even that injured. One woman went to hospital, which you know is not great, but but because it because of that, it, it didn't really cause much of a fuss. Um, it, it was kind of like it very buried very quickly in the press. The third one is the one where it all blows up, but it, it seems to me like looking back that it was almost entirely fictional i i think that that was almost completely fictional that story basically that i i can't find any records of the guy t gifford i can find no records of him as a psychic investigator already it makes you like i don't know if he was using a false name or if he just didn't really do anything or what but i can't find any records of a, of a t gifford I, I i tried like theo thomas like you know i put in all like this records um I couldn't find any records of a T Gifford born and living in that that sort of time in that area so I'm not sure that he even exists even more sort of less or even less likely to exist I should say is the captain um captain M so in old newspapers they used to do this to disguise um uh, or, or or maintain anonymity of subjects that they would write like the first letter of the surname and then Follow the rest with like a long dash. So in this, it's Captain M and then a long dash. So like that's all we've got is Captain M. Again, I've looked in the area and can't find any captains with uh, a surname that begins with M. So I'm pretty sure that he didn't exist either. I'm pretty sure that entire story is a complete fiction. But that's where the hairy hands really takes off. So you can almost, right from the very start, say that, okay... The first two stories, the first accident, no one mentions hairy hands at all. The motorbike basically failed. You know, um, the, the spokes in the wheel broke, and the car uh, and the axle snapped, and the bike crashed. The second one, it was um, slightly weirder. That was a they call it a sharaban, which is like this big open top, like mini bus thing with like an open top that f- sort of fit about sort of fifteen ish people in something like that. Um, and that swerved off the road. But I don't know, it doesn't seem that uncommon. I, I found a lot of other Sharaban accidents. They seem to be reasonably common. But anyway, that was the one that didn't, nothing really happened. So nothing is mentioned in those first two stories about any hairy hands. It's the third story that really sort of brings the hands into it. And it seems like the entire thing's a complete fiction. So, right from the very start, it seems like it was a fiction that's since been built upon and built upon by adding more and more fiction amazingly you'd never believe the newspaper that printed that original <laughs> fiction story was the daily mail well we all know the daily mail you know i mean not you know today it's a terrible newspaper in iraq but it always was because even way back in the 1920s um you know it, the daily mail is the paper that's responsible for you know the, the the Tutankhamun's curse sort of nonsense as well, where, because they the, they couldn't write stories about Tutankhamun because there was an exclusive deal with the Times, so they could only write like around the periphery of Tutankhamun. But the Daily Mail writers, I suppose you can say, cleverly worked out that if they could write anything about Tutankhamun, people would eat it up. So they just started writing about curses and stuff because. They could just get away with it, and and people would buy it and 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 eat it up because it was it was the jazz that everyone was into, and in, at the time, you know, it was the big story, and um, but it wasn't talking about facts, so they didn't they could kind of edge around that exclusivity deal and and still print like things about the Tutankhamun's tomb, tomb, despite the fact it wasn't true, and none of them was true. So we know like now that. Even back then, they were making up nonsense and they had absolutely no integrity whatsoever. So, you know, it's no surprise that it's the Daily Mail that's done this report, which leads me to believe, I say, I think it was almost entirely a fiction. But, I mean, of course, it's a folk tale, right? And that's okay. What I find more interesting, and why I didn't just write this episode off and just be like, right, what's the point? You know, this is just rubbish. Is that I mean, A, it's a great story for a start. But B, I just like Ben the way that you can kind of see how it gets into like oral tradition. Like I really like that story of um, the the guy who wrote the letter into the newspaper saying that they've been motoring across the moors and they saw the signs. That's really fascinating to me, and that shows something. That shows quite a lot in that that was eight you no know, six years later or seven years later, and someone was putting those signs up, which means that at least locally the hairy hand story must have stayed in like oral tradition for quite some time and and stayed in the kind of local psyche for some time. It must have really kind of stuck about and, and really hung around. Um, so I found that really interesting and I felt like that's what gave this story like a, a, an interesting kick really is that you can see that that one story in the newspaper has kicked off a kind of local tradition almost. Uh, it's sort of, inspired a local it's it's it's, it's basically bought a local kind of legend into existence like that like overnight you know which i found really fascinating uh, uh, you know and and to have lasted even six and seven years that's quite some time and I, I was gutted that no one wrote in to answer him because obviously he it was a correspondence so he'd written that letter to a newspaper i was absolutely gutted that no one followed it up and replied to it um i, I looked through every paper from every day for the like two months after that, hoping like every day that someone would reply, but they didn't. So I was gutted. But that was really interesting. I think one of the more interesting things, and the, or, or less actually, it's not interesting; it's just frustrating, is that the way that this story is sort of approached today, and the the, the copy paste regurgitation of the falsehoods without any sort of research put into it at all so and this is by people who should know better and I'm not going to drop any names but there are paranormal sort of researchers and writers today that make a living writing books about this stuff who are clearly that I feel like they hinder and, and they're a detriment to the idea of like paranormality and you know the whole genre More that they're a hindrance more than a help, right? Like, they're just clearly sensationalist writers and bad writers at that. And I don't want to name any names, like I say, because I don't want to sort of point anyone out because plenty of people have done this story and, and they've all done it the same way and just regurgitated things from each other. But it takes two seconds to find out that Theo Brown was born in 1912 and she therefore wasn't married in 1924. Her book is not difficult to get hold of. You know, you can buy copies of it on eBay for a couple of quid. It's. I just think you know these people they write these stories, and I guess in a way they're good because I. I guess on the one hand it's cool because they're they're propagating this kind of urban legend, and I've nothing against that. Like I love this story. I love the urban legend of this story, but where, where I struggle is that these people are supposedly serious and they've made an awful lot of money out of this. And of course, they'll go on the podcast tour and they'll do interviews and they'll tell people how they don't make any money writing these books, but clearly they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't have written a hundred of them, you know, (laughs) like, or, you know, they're not doing it for a laugh. You know, it's like, oh, come on. We all know, like, you can be honest with us. Why do you have to lie as well? You know, why do you have to lie about how much money you're making? Like... It's as if they think that if they lie about how much money they're making, people aren't going to question the fact that they didn't even look up a bloody Google search on Theo Brown to find out that she's twelve. It's just ah. Oh, anyway, I'm going on rant, so I'm going to stop. Um, yes, that was the the hairy hands of Dartmoor. <laughs> um, I thought it was a, a really fascinating story, and I, like I say, I I, I really thought it's a shame that it was able to be torn apart so quick and so easily but what i didn't think is a shame was i i really like the way it shows how urban legends kind of evolve over time and how things are just born from nothing you know because and because they're old they become part of the canon like you know like like the daily mail can just write a piece that, that's t- almost an entire fiction and then boom it's just born because it's old it doesn't matter it's it's as folklore as anything else at that point. it's. I thought that was really fascinating. So, you know, I don't think it detracts from the, the, the intrigue and the interest of the story or, or whatever. So that's why I kind of stuck with this episode and done it anyway. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, thanks very much for listening. Um, sorry for going on a massive rant. <laughs> thanks, So uh, as always, for listening. Um, I hope you are staying healthy and well. We'll be doing a live stream very soon. Um, so... Um, yeah it'd be great to see everyone because it's been a while Um, so it'd be great if you want to come along so it'd be great to see everyone on that Um, and I'll let you know obviously that about that on social media of which Dark Issues is pretty much everywhere you can follow me on um, Twitter Facebook Instagram and and um, you know if you want to DM me as well you can do that through those things and you can find all of that on darkhistories.com And you can also email me through darkissues.com. So yeah, please do get in touch if if you've got anything you want to have a chat about, basically. Um, Thanks very much for listening. Thank you very much for all your reviews um, and sharing the podcast. And, you know, if you're a patron, thank you so much for your financial support as well, of course. Um, Just just all the ways that you support the show, um, that's amazing. Um, And like I say, just thanks very much for listening, really. Uh, I will see you all very soon um i hope you stay well stay healthy and um sleep tight cheers